Good morning, everybody. Sorry. So before we get into God's word, just take an opportunity to quiet your mind, quiet your heart, and just say a quick prayer to let the Holy Spirit get us ready to hear what we're going to hear Daniel preach today. as we ask for that for ourselves, uh, just take a look around you, and you're going to see awesome people sitting next to you, but they have struggles and anxieties and stuff, so just take a moment to pray for people around you and that you know that are here this morning, that they would also be able to listen and feel refreshed by the Lord. And lastly, uh, please pray for Daniel. This isn't a super fun passage, but um, we get to see, a, yeah, help him to be faithful to show us how amazing Jesus is. And if the Holy Spirit has something else for him to share as well, just help him to be faithful. So please pray for Pastor Daniel now too. Lord, you are so good. And we saw it last time when even in the midst of a, a ter terrible situation, you are still loving. You are still kind. You're even merciful. And we get to see that again today. It is not easy to read. It's not easy to hear. But help us to be more filled with awe and help us to be more like you when people slander us and, and treat us terribly. Help us to look to your example. Give us your strength. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you come now and help our ears and hearts to listen well and help Daniel to do a great job being faithful to what you've done. And may he instruct us and help us to encourage him by listening too. Amen. All right, so uh, we're going to be in Luke. Uh, chapter 22, and we're going to touch the first part of chapter 23. So it's going to be Luke 22, starting on verse 63. <clears throat> now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, 
the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, or he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Good morning, church. Thank you, Brother Pete. Before I jump into the text, I um, just want to honor uh, Joanne Stricker, who was, uh, her faith became sight yesterday morning. And uh, Charlotte's grandmother, uh, she's been functionally a part of our church for many months now, and Ross uh, and Charlotte, since they got married, have been carrying for, for uh, Joanne very well. And so, well done. Your, your ministry to her, so powerful to see. You guys served her well. That was not easy work for them. And friends, uh, she is with the Lord. What we just confessed, we believe in a resurrection. She will rise again. Right now, she's with the Lord, and she will get a new body. But right now, she's with him. In the comfort of his arms, what a great joy it is to be able to confess that reality. And praise the Lord for his mercy towards Joanne. It's not because he was, she was a, a perfect, sinless woman, because, but because of the perfect innocence of Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about today. So, uh, man, in my childhood, I often heard these words, Daniel... Will you come here for a minute? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, wherever, from wherever I was, usually it was in the basement. I, you know, away. Usually the bad stuff happened when you're away from, <laughs> from your parents' sight. You think you're away from their sight and, and their ears. But uh, I'd come upstairs slowly thinking to myself uh, about all the ways I'm going to prove my innocence. And... Um, Man, I never did, right? <laughs> like, it just never worked. Uh, my, my case was weak. Um, have you ever been caught before? Maybe you can remember one, you know, whether it's a test you cheated on or, you know, you told a lie to somebody or you got caught maybe cutting corners at work or uh, maybe talking behind somebody's back, right? Um, Unless you've lived under a rock up until this moment, I assure you that we've all been there, right? 
We've all been there. But today, as I just mentioned, we're going to be talking about a man who never got caught. (laughs) There was nothing on this innocent one. He would be tried. We're going to look at this trial that we just read about. Tried before the lawyers, right? They, They would hold everyone to the Roman, I mean, to the Jewish law. They would be tried by the Roman court, and nobody is going to find anything on this Jesus. Here's what I want to try to answer today. Why does his innocence matter so much to us? Why does, this, why does it matter so much to us? But before we dive in, let me just bring us back to the, the narrative, kind of where we are in the text. So Jesus, as we saw a few weeks ago, shared his last meal with his disciples, the twelve. Then he heads to the garden and he's pouring out his soul before God because of what's about to come upon him. And yet he surrenders his will to the Father. This is just before he's he's approached by a mob of angry officers and Jewish leaders, all led by his friend, Judas. Then we can see in other gospel accounts that all the disciples are going to run away. They're going to flee in fear. And one of his very closest friends, Peter, is going to deny him three times before the rooster crows. It's true what Jesus said to his captors. This was the hour and power of darkness. That's what we're going to see, a lot of darkness. But in this darkness, friends, Jesus is going to shine, man. He is going to shine. So let's get into the text. Verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. The king of kings was mocked and blasphemed in the middle of the night. By who? Who were these men doing these things? Well, we're told just a few verses early in verse 52 that it's the chief priests and the officers of the temple that came after him. We're told in verse 54 that it's Caiaphas' house that they brought him to, the high priest. These are the shepherds of Israel, the, the men that everybody's supposed to look up to. Spiritually, but here they are mocking him as they beat him. He's they've got him blindfolded. Doubtless they're they're punching him in the face, they're hitting him in the gut, they're hitting him anywhere, kicking him that would bring shame and physical pain. They mock him, prophesy. Prophesy. Who is it that struck you? It's an incredible scene and I wonder, what would you do in that situation? Imagine being Jesus. Imagine being in his shoes. And this this Jesus, who is creator, we know from John 1, by him all things were made, who is their Lord, he he knows everything about these men. He he loves them completely. He knows every bit about their sin. Is he going to... Is he going to respond and, and show them who they're messing with? Right? Is he, is he going to take a blow into the face? Pfft. Yeah, that was, that was John. He just cheated on his wife this week. 
okay, that was Matthias. Yeah, he's, he's jealous of the high priest. <clears throat> That's Caiaphas. He's a deeply insecure man. No, that's, that's not what Jesus did. The gospel accounts say that he took it silently. He just stood there. This is not Jesus' weakness on display here. In fact, this is his power. This is an all-powerful God-man who's holding his tongue, who has power to wield legions of angels at any given moment, and yet who takes the abuse willingly. Mark's gospel account adds that, that he, would, he would be tried and, and many would stand up to try to find testimony against him one after another, but guess what? Nobody had anything on him. Mark's account says they couldn't keep their stories straight. They had nothing. He was innocent and they were beating an innocent man. The scene's gonna get darker. Verse 66, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. So after the night of abuse, he's brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin. This is, again, the, the highest ruling class of the, of the Jews. They're, they're, again, the spiritual shepherds. They're supposed to be the, the best of the best judges and lawyers training and teaching the people. It should have been those who knew the scriptures enough to be able to say, this is the Messiah. Help everybody come to him. They should have been doing that. And yet what we see is that they want him dead. All through the gospel of Luke, in every gospel account, it is these leaders who try to find a way to get Jesus killed. And here's what they're going to do. Instead of Instead of leading the people to Jesus, they try to kill him. Verse 67 says, they demanded, if you were the Christ, tell us. Tell us. They want it plainly. And why does this question matter to, to them so much? Yes, it matters on religious grounds, right? If he's the Messiah, it super matters. But there's something more that they're after, They want Jesus to confess that he's the Messiah because the Messiah is Israel's king. And if he confesses to be king, he can be tried as a revolutionary before the Roman courts. So how does Jesus respond? He says, but if I I tell you, you will not believe. If I ask you a question, you will not answer. What is Jesus talking about? He, he's right here. If you look all through the gospel accounts, you find Jesus openly claiming to be, be the Messiah, saying, hey, I'm the fulfillment of this messianic text. Think Luke 4, one of his very first sermons. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me to, bring, to release the captives, and on and on. Right? Further, his, his life, his teachings, his, his powerful signs, everything is giving them good reason to believe, and yet they refuse. Jesus was prophesied to be the king. You can look at chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. He was born of a virgin, chapter 2 of Luke. He received affirmation and a commissioning at his baptism. The father said straight up, this is my son. 
and yet they did not believe. Further, Jesus would ask them questions to lead them to the, to the truth that he is the Messiah, and they just simply would be silent. You can look at Luke chapter 20. They would shut up if it was going to show that Jesus was the Messiah. Listen to the rest of Jesus' answer, verse 69. He says, But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. From now on. That struck me this week. He says, from right now on, right? This is the reality. What Jesus is saying is, it doesn't matter if you believe ultimately. It doesn't matter if you kill me. This is the reality. I am about to ascend into heaven. I'm going to die, yes, but I will rise and I will ascend and I will be seated at my Father's right hand in power. There is nothing that they can do in that moment. It doesn't matter what they do or what they believe. Jesus will ascend and forever be exalted at the right hand and rule and reign on his throne. He's referencing two famous prophecies about the Messiah here. One is Psalm 110. You'll be exalted to the right hand. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstools. He also in Daniel 7, we'll get into that one. That'll be up on the screen. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that is the father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and language should serve him. What Jesus is saying in this statement is that he is that man from Daniel's vision. He is the son of man, and he was about to ascend to the level of God and reign over all the peoples and nations. His accusers doubtless knew these, tests, these scriptures by heart, and yet instead of believing him, they keep pressing him to find a way to get him killed. They ask a follow-up question, verse 70. Are you the son of God then? So first, their, their question shows that they understand that Jesus is saying he's the son of God, right? That all of these, these scriptures that Jesus is referencing is pointing to that reality. So you're the son of God then. But why do they bring it back to that question? Why son of God? Why do they want to know that? Well, son of God is a title from 1 Samuel chapter 7 about the Messiah. They're again trying to find a way for Jesus to say he's king. If he says I'm the son of God, they can potentially condemn him before the Romans as a revolutionary king. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, you say that I am. That's kind of a weird answer. It seems elusive. But really, he's just saying, yes, it is as you say. It is as you say. He gives them what, he, what they want in this moment. He speaks out his identity. He answers them in the affirmative. 
How do they respond? What further testimony do we need? We've heard it from his own lips. What should have been the greatest honor, what should have been produced fear and awe, and each of them, one by one, just going to their knees and bowing face to the ground before their king, instead leads them to believe, we're ready, let's take them to the Romans. Let's hand them over to the Gentiles. Produces even more murderous slander and accusation. Was Jesus guilty simply for affirming his identity? Surely they they would have condemned him. They should have condemned him if he was phony and out for selfish gain. I would say that. We should all say that. If Jesus was phony, if he was claiming to be the Messiah, he should have been condemned in that moment. But friends, they had nothing on him. He was who he said he was. He was, in fact, the only one in Israel's history who was innocent. He was the only one in the history of the world who lived holy and righteous before the Lord. He was the only innocent one. But what do we see from them? We see hard hearts that say, no. He's a a blasphemer. He's going to take our power. He's going to take our religious system. He's going to turn our systems upside down. He's got to die. Why can something so clear, all the witness of Jesus' life, all of his signs, all of his testimony, all the fulfillment of Scripture, why can they possibly come to this conclusion? How can they come to this conclusion? How can mankind twist things so badly? We see it again and again and again in the scriptures, and I think all of these accounts are meant to point out to us that we are not good judges. We are not inherently good. Friends, we do not see the world rightly. We don't see ourselves or God rightly, do we? We are so quick to throw the first stone. But Jesus you remember that account, he says, if you're without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone at this adulterous woman. I think he says that because he's pointing out this reality that none of us are without sin. None of us. Just as the psalmist says, God looks down from heaven on on all mankind, all, to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. What's the verdict? Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Friends, the Bible is not full of stories of good men and women who just need an example to help make sure they stay in the right path. The Bible is full of stories of adulterers and idolaters and thieves and murderers. And we are among them. But instead of Turning to God, though we need a savior like a diseased man needs a doctor, what do we do? We look for everything but God. A new self help book, a new religious regimen, 
a new diet, maybe it's a new haircut, some new gadget or career or hobby or relationship. It's everything but God. This book is screaming from beginning to end, we need a savior. We need light to pull us out of the darkness. And you are not that light. His name is Jesus. Come to him and live. That's the, that's the story of this book from beginning to end. Leading us to him. But the men are going to reject him and have him killed. It's going to get darker, but Jesus is going to shine brighter. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 23. It says, The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. So who's Pilate? He's this ruling governor of, over Judea in the Roman Empire. And they bring him to Pilate because he's the only one who really has authority to have Jesus killed. The Jews have authority, but it's authority on a leash. Pilate, on the other hand, can have the man crucified. What's happening here as they bring him to Pilate is he is fulfilling what he said would happen to him. He would be handed over to the Gentiles. It says in verse 2, They begin to accuse him before Pilate, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, that is, pay taxes, and saying that he is a king, a Christ. Notice the, the change from religious grounds on their law, right, to political grounds. They want to capture him in this reality. He's a king, and he's against your kingdom. This is exactly what the accusations are getting at when he, he says that, when they say that, he, that Jesus is disrupting their loyalty to the Roman Empire. He's, he's misleading us. He's disrupting our, our thing that we've got going here. He's, he's refusing that we pay taxes. He claims to be a king. Pilate's answer shows that, that this is what really concerns him. He, he answers and says, Are you the king of the Jews? He needs the same sort of response that the Jews wanted. Listen to Jesus' answer. He says, you have said so. Here a second time, Jesus gives this same guarded affirmation. Still an affirmation says, yes, it is as you say. And friends, this is, this is very significant considering the man he's standing before. He could have shrunk back in this moment knowing what would come on him if he claims to be a king. But he doesn't. He doesn't shrink back at all. Here's what's surprising. Despite Jesus' open confession right there, I am the Messiah, I am the King of the Jews, what does Pilate say? He declares, I find no guilt in him. What, what kind of man can get away with that? What man can come into the Roman realm and say, hey, I'm a king? Just this one, I assure you. Just Jesus. His demeanor, his posture, everything about this man said to Pilate, innocent. He's not threatened by him. 
He doesn't see anything in the man that's threatening him, even though he's just claimed to be a king. And Pilate made a good judgment there. Jesus had always taught openly. He had always said, hey, they tried to catch him in, in a question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? He said, yeah, pay the taxes. And at the same time, give to God what is due him. He said to Pilate right in front of him, he said, yo, my kingdom, that was a little, not, not exactly what he said. He didn't say yo. <laughs> my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, you'd see my servants fighting, but they're not. It's because my kingdom is not of this world. You see, Jesus held perfectly in tension this reality. He belonged to two worlds. He belonged to this world, and he submitted to its gover governing systems while perfectly submitting to his heavenly Father in the kingdom of God. This is what he invited all of us into, all of his disciples into. So contrary to what they wanted Pilate to believe, he was innocent, even on Roman terms. His kingdom was fundamentally different than the kingdoms of the world. But verse 5 shows they wouldn't take no for an answer. They were urgent. He stirs up the people. He's teaching through Judea and from Galilee and even down to this place. They want him to believe that he's a revolutionary. See all the places he's been. He's teaching and stirring up the people. Oh man, as I look at the stories of Jesus teaching from Galilee to Judea and all through Samaria, what was he doing? He was healing the sick. He was raising the dead. He was touching the eyes of the blind. He was setting demonized people free. He stirred up the people, but man, the waves that he was making were waves in the hearts of weary men and women. He's, he was, the, the kingdom of God was dawning on people's hearts. It wasn't a revolution of dominance, but one that was causing people to submit and bow to their Lord. His reign was increasing one by one who were changed by his message and his powerful touch. They want him dead. They were urgent. They had nothing of legitimacy, and Pilate knew it. But as we'll see in next week's sermon, he, though he wanted to release them, he gave in to the fear of man and condemns Jesus to be crucified. Never in the history of the world has there been one innocent like Jesus. And yet he was condemned to die. This is the epitome of injustice. There is no greater injustice that this world has seen. In my last few minutes, I want to try to answer that question. Why does his innocence matter so much to us today? Why does it matter so much to Luke? Why should it matter to you? What matters because we need a sinless substitute. Let me explain. Friends, we are guilty. We're guilty, all of us. Yes, 
Pilate was guilty for his unjust judgment. Yes, these Jews who brought an innocent man forward was guilty, but we are also guilty. Knowing myself, knowing us, knowing the propensity to sin, knowing our propensity to quickly judge others without, without clarity on a situation, we would have done the same thing. We would have mocked. We would have condemned. We would have crucified the man. Further, on another angle, if we were the ones standing there on trial before men, if you had people scraping up all of your history, finding, hey, here's a record of his past. You go to your parents, right? Was this man innocent? We would all be guilty before God and man on so many accounts. Not one is innocent. We're guilty. That means we desperately need a Savior today. We desperately need a Savior or we're going to face the wrath of God. A just wrath. Further, Jesus had to be innocent if he were going to be any help to us at all. Why? Why did he have to be innocent? Because if he were sinful like us, he would be on the same sinking ship. Right? If we're all guilty, if everyone is guilty, we're out on the boat, and the boat is going down, and he's just one of us, we're done. But Jesus was not born as us with a sinful nature. He came from heaven, born of a virgin, yes, fully man, but he was like Adam 2.0, as Romans 5 unpacks. And he was coming as our rescue. He was the rescue boat for us. He was coming as we're sinking. He's the only one that can do it. Here we are all sinking, and Jesus is on a singular rescue mission. He is the refuge. He's the only one sufficient. But friends, he didn't just rescue us as if he could just, hey, I'll tow you uh, to shore at no cost to himself. No, the Bible shows us that Jesus had to actually get onto our boat as he kindly, lovingly ushered us onto his. He had to, we had to switch places with him. He had to be our substitute. You see, this book tells a story of God's redemption. It tells a story of a just God who can't just come to, to sinful people and say, Okay, I guess I'll forgive you. You're, you're crying enough, or you're sad enough, or you're promising enough that you're going to turn and live differently. No. The story of God's justice is a story that demands penalty for sin, and the penalty for sin is death. Blood has to be shed. There has to be a substitute, and guess what? God provides it. From the sacrificial system, we see innocent lambs being put forward in place of the people. This is God's mercy that the people of God would not have to die in their sin, but instead a substitute would die. And friends, Jesus, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
There is one lamb. That's what this book tells us. He was slain on a cross so that any who believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. He was slain so that anyone who believes in him would no longer be seen as guilty before God, but instead as the innocent one, as Jesus alone is. We switch place. (coughs) He's our substitute. Through Through faith, our guilt is transferred to him while his innocence is transferred to us. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not that you or I have anything to bring to the table. All of us are sinking, and we need Jesus. And he came, and he jumped on the boat we're all going down on, and he said, welcome to mine. I love you. You can have my place. You can have my life. I love this gospel. Mm. He is a just God, and he doesn't want us to die. He doesn't want you to die in your sins. He doesn't want anyone, no one, none of our neighbors, none of your friends and coworkers or your children. Jesus, oh, the love of God. It is so rich and beyond our comprehension. I hope you're feeling that today as we just marvel fresh at this great innocent one taking our place. That's why he went silently. That's why he went willingly. From the garden, yes, Lord, I'll do what you say. All the way to the moment where he's hanging on a cross saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit to you. He was doing it so that you and I would not have to die for the sins that we have committed, that we deserve to die for. The sins that we committed this week, maybe this morning, he doesn't want you dead for them. But death was not the end of the story. Justice can't allow a man to stay in the grave that's innocent. Justice can't allow an innocent man to stay in the grave. Just as he promised, he would raise again, rise again in three days. Thank you, Jesus. How do, we, how do we respond? How do we respond to this glorious gospel today? How do we live in light of what we just heard? Well, if you're here today and you are trusting Jesus, and this is the gospel that you say is, this is my hope. I cling to this day in and day out. Then I want you to rejoice in your Savior. That's why we sing songs each Sunday, because songs help give expression to what we feel. We confess truth with all of our being. Oh God, we rejoice in you. Yes, it's right to grieve this reality that his death was required for my sin. But it's also right to rejoice today with great rejoicing. Oh, happy day. I want you to rejoice. God rescued you. If you're here today and you're not sure that you believe this message, I just want to urge you to come. Come to this one. Come to Jesus. Come to him right now. There is no other rescue. There is no other lifeboat. You can search and search. The world is going to present many other ways to you. 
This gospel message is clear. God is a just God, and he will condemn anyone who doesn't take refuge in Jesus, the innocent one. There is no other rescue, and I just want to urge you to put your hope in him. Jesus promised that he would rise again. He said, I'm going to the right hand of God. I'm going to be seated there, and indeed, he is right there. And he promises us he is coming again. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And I want you to bow before that day. Because there won't be mercy for the man or woman who rejects him. So come to him. All of us together come to him again and again and again. We come to him. Find refuge in joy in our Savior. He's the only way to find forgiveness and guilt from the death we deserve. In just a moment, we're going to take this supper together like we do each week. And as we take this bread that was broken for you and this juice representing the blood of Christ, I want you to remember that that was innocent, that was innocent blood. And you're taking it because he gave it for you, the guilty. It's for you today. Because of this great sacrifice, we're promised that death no no longer has dominion over you, so you can take it rejoicing in that reality. We're promised that no list of sins or guilt or shame that you feel today, it could be the worst of the worst sins It could be sins that get the death penalty in this life, but God won't hold it over you. And that's what this says when you drink and eat. Nothing can stand against the pure and cleansing blood of Jesus. We who are guilty are declared innocent because of Jesus. So we're going to worship in just a minute. I'm going to pray. Invite the worship team back up. Our Father... (laughs) What can we do but thank you? And Lord, I ask you to help us to do it from our hearts. Help us to sense that this is true for my sins right now. Lord, I'm asking that you would help us to not just say words or sing words or try to... uh, feel something, but Lord, that we would just, that you would stir our hearts in a fresh way this morning to marvel and worship and to behold you. Lord, please, if there's people in here that don't believe and are struggling and feel tension in their hearts right now for a slew of reasons, would you just come and minister to their hearts and invite them in? Let the love of God wash over their their mind and heart, so that they want to just scream, I believe, help my unbelief. Let me walk with you. God, we love you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. We love you together. Pray this in your name. Amen.